Well, good evening, brethren. It's a pleasure to be back at Saudi after at least seven years and maybe maybe a little longer than that. And I'm glad I brought my, my clock with me. I, I need to take a clock everywhere I go because I'm running into a lot of unscriptural churches that don't have clocks in the auditorium. And then they fuss at the preacher for not letting them out on time. So what are you going to do, right? Anyway, so I've got this. And somebody said, what does that mean? And if you talk to a lot of members, it say, they'll say it means absolutely nothing. He's going to let you go when he lets you go. But I'm, I'm not going to keep you long tonight. I appreciate so much the opportunity to come back and to speak to the good church here at Saudi. Uh, GPS took me to a place that I don't think some of y'all even know is in this town and called it Saudi. called it Saudi Daisy. And I'm going, this is not Saudi Daisy. It was a, cr a curve in the road. And it called it Saudi Daisy. It's like, okay, this is not. The, so I just got back and went across the interstate, and there you were. So uh, appreciate so much y'all giving us this opportunity. You should have received one of the, uh, the yellow handout. Uh, I do apologize. Our printer failed uh, this time, so it, these will look better next time. But mainly you can read it, and that's what it's all about, is for you to be able to read the information. It gives you an overview about the work that we're doing, and I'm going to tell you about that work tonight. Uh, let me see if I can figure out how to turn this good thing on, and we'll see what happens. By the way, I'm so excited because at Tanner, we're about to get this done, and we're really excited about it, doing away with that one projector in the back that was just destroying everything. So now we're excited about it. So I was curious about how this is going to work and I'm glad to see it works so well. Okay, so um, India is a nation uh, that's uh, about one-third size of the United States square miles. It's about the size of the U.S. east of the Mississippi, okay? So it's a huge country, but still small, comparatively speaking, and yet it is a population nightmare. India is the fastest growing country in the world, 77,000 babies born every day there. The, according to U.S. statistics, we had 9,877 babies born every day last year in, in 2020. Uh, in previous times, at our height, it was 15,000 babies a day in this country. That was at the height, okay? But now, we're talking 9,877 9, babies born every day in this country. In India, 77,000 babies born every single day. There are people everywhere, crowded streets, crowded vehicles, crowded inter intersections. Uh, and, of course, this creates a transportation nightmare, as you can well imagine. So here's my first question, all right? So, class, what is this? This is Dad's minivan. He's taking the kids to school. How many kids do you see? How many? How many do you see on that, on that bike? Five kids. They're in the school uniforms, and Dad's heading them off to school. So there you go. Transportation is a challenge. Uh, these are some folks on the way to work in the fields, in the rice fields or the doll fields or the chili pepper fields. Uh, they're off to work, and so we were passing them in the car. They were friendly and waving. Uh, this is how you can know they were off to work, because if they're on their way home from work, they'd be going like this, okay? But uh, so anyway, but look at how crowded that thing is. They just jump everything they can. Um, auto, oh, auto rickshaws, this button is excited. 
okay? It moves fast. You have to really pay attention to this thing. Auto rickshaw is a three-wheeled golf cart, basically. It has a bicycle seat in the front for the driver to sit on, uh, handlebars, and there's no room up there for anybody else to sit. You have a bench seat in the back that the preacher and, and I could get in, but none of the rest of you could get in there. I have seen 17 Indians in one golf cart, one of these auto rickshaws, 17. Now, they were hanging all over it, obviously, but still, 17. Now, I have no explanation for this bus. I just have no words. And you say people. Yeah, well, it's not just people. It's also stuff. Those are plastic water pots. Don't even ask me how they got them all on there. And then I don't have words for this. These are coconut husks. What are you going to do, right? You have to have, you have to get them from here to there. And they do it in India better than any place I've ever seen. Let me talk to you about railroad crossings. In the U.S., the railroad crossings are set based on uh, um, whatever the mechanism is. It's in the track. And as the train crosses that, the gate will go down in front, right? In India, they just haven't figured that out yet. So they have a little old man at each railroad crossing, and he has a hand crank, and he will lower the guardrails when the train is scheduled to be there. Do you realize what kind of a mess that can create? Because a lot of times the trains may be 15, 20 minutes late. We have waited 30 minutes for a train to come before they raise the guardrails. So it piles up. Well, Indians are like Americans in the sense that we all tend to become a little impatient. But they do something about it. We sit there and honk and get mad. It's called road rage. In India, they just fill up spots. So they will pull up to the left, which is not where they're supposed to be. Thank you, Great Britain, for teaching them to part, ride, drive on the wrong side of the road. They'll pull up on the left. They'll pull up on the right. They will fill up both lanes and the shoulders. There will be um, uh, the uh, auto rickshaws. There'll be cars. There'll be trucks. There'll be tractors with trailers. There'll be ox carts. There'll be bicycles and motorcycles and pedestrians and every other con con imaginable means of transportation and they will fill up every square inch and the longer the rail is down the further back they're piled up now what's happening on my side of the track is happening on the other side of the track what happens when the train goes by and the rail goes up you may as well just put a price tag on every vehicle because you've just got a car lot right you're not going anywhere this is typical this happens over there all the time so in India, you have to be able to be flexible. You have to be able to adapt, to overcome, and to just deal with things. In India, they operate more, more on the calendar than they do the clock. So I have been scheduled for four gospel meetings in one evening, one afternoon and night, four meetings. So we get to the first one. It's a 30-minute drive to the second one. They schedule the first one at, at 4 o'clock in the afternoon the next one at 5, the next one at 6, the next one at 7. It was 9.30 by the time we got to the third one because the distance and the roads were so bad. My point is the people were still waiting. They were still there waiting. They just sang. They'd get some chai and come back and sing some more. They said the preacher will be here when he gets here. That's the attitude of the folks we run into in India. They just, they're hungry to hear the word of God. Okay, so let me tell you a little bit about 
the, the, the contrast. India is one of the wealthiest countries in the world and also one of the poorest. So of the top 10 richest people in the world, three of them live in India. One of them is in the top five, okay? Uh, and yet they also have some of the poorest in the world. The high rises, that's where the, the lower income, uh, middle, in, middle income people live, the lower middle income, the lower middle class. The poorer ones live in these ramshackled things they've thrown together uh, to do construction work or any other odd jobs that they can pick up in the city, which includes even sweeping the streets. And so you'll see at 3 and 4 in the morning as you're going back from being out on the road and coming back through the city, you'll see old people and young people sweeping the streets with these little straw brooms. These are some of the places where they live. So this is a, it is a vast difference between the luxury and the poverty. I'll illustrate that with the Indian rupee. Uh, Indian rupees, about 10,000 uh, uh, rupees is roughly $14. So here we go. For 325 million, now that's almost the population of the United States of America, okay? Almost. 325 million people in India live on an annual income of $160 per person. That's $640 for a family of four. And that's their whole year's income. That's it. And so it's not a matter that they don't have enough food. There's plenty of food. They don't have the money to buy the food. They will not be able to ever send their kids to college. They certainly can't afford to go to the doctor. They will never own a home. They'll never own a motorized vehicle. These people are stuck, and they will never get out of it. They do not have an opportunity. In this country, you can come to this country with a dollar in your pocket and make something of yourselves. Not so in India. They're held back. The way the system is set up, they don't have that opportunity. So these people are trapped in extreme poverty, and they are controlled by the Hindu religion. They are being controlled and kept there. That's what the Hindu religion does. It is insidious, all right? Then you move to your lower, lower middle class. That'll be the folks that live in those cheap, rundown high-rise buildings, those little flats or apartments, we would call them. They have an annual family income of about $128 a month, and that's it. That's all they have. They, of course, might be able to buy a motor scooter. They probably will never own a car. They cannot afford to send their kids to college. If there's a, a, a medical crisis in the family, they're going to be in debt the rest of their life. It's just this is the way it is for the vast majority of the people. Well, not the majority. This is a little less than, the, than half of the population of India that are living like this. And the regular middle class doing a little bit better, the upper middle class, then you have your lower rich, and then you have your filthy rich. In India, you don't see many overweight people. You see a lot of skinny people, a lot of skinny people. The only overweight people are the rich and foreigners. So when I go to India, they think I'm loaded, okay? But the reality is most Indians do not get enough to eat. They struggle. The, the rich do not struggle. The upper middle class, they do not really struggle. Most of us in this country, we struggle somewhat, but we don't struggle like they do. We, we, there are times when we wonder how we'll pay the bill, but we find a way, right? That's not necessarily the case over there. All right, now let me move to a Bible passage to illustrate where I'm going with this 
with this presentation. So in Acts chapter 8, we find Simon, I mean, we find Philip going down to Samaria, and he preaches the gospel of Christ to these people, and they are very excited to hear it. Uh, they listen carefully to what he says. They hear his message. They see the miracles that he does. Uh, and, and so we have him casting out demons, healing the sick, and there's great joy in the city. Verse 12. We're skipping the part about Simon the sorcerer for now. Verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Now, the gospel is the power of God to salvation. But what did the miracles do in this case? They got the people's attention. It got the people's attention. And, of course, when Peter and John came down, they laid hands on folks. They received the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit that further got the people's attention. And more and more and more were baptized into Christ. The church grew exponentially in Samaria, just like Jesus in effect, said it would because he told them, you wait in Jerusalem till you're endued with power from on high, and then you're to go into all of Jerusalem, all of Judea, then to Samaria, then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so when they went to Samaria, they had an incredible revival. Folks turning to God. It was a beautiful thing. Now, what about miracles today? Because the miracles then got their attention. It got the people's attention. And I have heard, I have heard members of the church bemoan the fact, saying, why couldn't we have miracles, miraculous gifts today? We could do so much good if we had these miraculous gifts. We could convince people that we were the New Testament church if we only had miraculous gifts. Brethren, Jesus did all kinds of miracles, and they still put him to death. Miracles do not convince people. Miracles get their attention. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. And the gospel is what we have to preach. No, it's not miracles that will make the difference. There are, there's, we have a tool at our disposal to help us get the attention of lost people, to touch their hearts, to move them, to listen to the gospel and if people will listen to the gospel they will obey it this is our problem as we try to door knock as we do bbs as we try to do any kind of evangelistic outreach is getting people to listen because many people are just not interested i've got my church i've got my family traditions i don't need no i don't need what makes you think yours is better than mine and on and on and on people go the thing that will get their attention it's when they know that you care about them. And that's what benevolence is all about. We have that tool. Now, I'm not preaching a social gospel where we have to try to make everybody have a better life. That's what some churches have made a mistake of doing. They try to help people have a better life, okay? A better home, better job, better health care, a better life. And that's great and fine and good. That's a social thing. But that's not what God gave the miracles for. Because Philip left. Peter and, and John left Samaria. And eventually every one of those people that received those miraculous gifts died. So what did the people do then? How did the church grow then? How does the church grow today? 
Benevolence, brethren, is a great tool that we have at our disposal, and we need to be using it. The Lord commanded it. Uh, we have the, the requirement to have love and compassion upon our brethren when we see a brother or sister in need. We have no right to close up our hearts against them. How can we say the love of God dwells in us if we do something like that? That's what John says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 17. And ultimately the goal in any kind of benevolence is to save the souls of lost people. That's what it's all about. That's the reason we do benevolence. It is out of compassion, yes. The Lord had compassion upon people, and he did good for them. But his ultimate goal was to help them serve God, and that must be our ultimate goal as well. That's why we do it. And with that in mind, let's talk about benevolence. The Indian brethren understand a lot of this. They have, there has been under this COVID situation with all the lockdowns and everything, the church in India has responded beautifully, and they have helped their people with bags of rice, with food, with um, uh, um, giving away, not just to church members, but to friends and family and, and people in their villages that were starving to death. Uh, this is Brother Sheshigiri Rao. We just lost him to COVID just a couple of months ago. Baptized him in 2002. He was a great worker in the kingdom. He was a, a, formerly a big evangelist with the New Apostolic Church in India. I'm talking big man, big salary, had a fine home, had cars and drivers. He was set for life. Hundreds and hundreds of preachers depended on him for their salaries. This was a big man. But he was baptized into Christ, lost all of that, lost all of that. But he was faithful to the Lord and helped convert literally thousands of people and hundreds of denominational preachers that that man is responsible for bringing to the Lord. But he was also very involved in benevolence, loaded up that auto rickshaw with food that he and his local congregation had, had gathered to help the poor and the needy in their area. Now, who are the people that are the most receptive to the gospel of Christ? What group of people are the most receptive to the gospel of Christ? In 1 Corinthians 1.26, it says, Not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. What does that mean? Well, how, are you, how did you become a Christian? God called you. It, with a voice in the night? No, through the gospel, through the word of God. That's how you were called. I was called to preach through the gospel, not through some still small voice. You were called to become a Christian. You were called to serve God. God called you by his gospel, by his power. Your heart was moved to obey the gospel. You saw it. You saw the need. You realized you were lost. You saw Jesus was the only answer you had. You learned all that from the scriptures. You didn't learn that from some miraculous indwelling, some outpouring, or some eye-opening event. You learned that from hearing the gospel of Christ. And that's exactly what happened in Samaria. They saw these incredible miracles, but they heard the gospel, and they believe the things that they heard. And that's exactly what's happening in India. Now, I want you to notice also Mark 12, verse 37. It says, and the common people, talking about Jesus, the common people heard him gladly. We have converted doctors, attorneys, Hindu priests. We've converted government officials. We've converted, Paul converted some folks in, in uh, uh 
Caesar's house. <laughs> had to remember what, his, what he was. I wouldn't say Pharaoh. That's not it. Old Testament. Paul converted someone in Caesar's own household. We do convert some people that are wealthy. We convert some people that are highly placed, highly educated, uh, excellent jobs. We have college professors and high school teachers. We have police officers. We have military people. We, we converted, I don't know how many people that are well-placed, but the vast majority of the millions that are now members of the Lord's Church in India, of the literal millions that are members of the church, most of them are among that 625 million people who are in the lower end of the spectrum. And that's exactly the same percentages that we would convert here by using benevolence. You're going to reach some, but you're going to face the fact. People that are materialistic, people that have learned to depend upon their wealth and their own ability to lift themselves up by their own bootstraps are not interested in hearing about Jesus. They're, they don't realize how badly they need the gospel. But these folks do. These folks realize it. Now, we invite everyone, and, and anyone who's willing to listen, we will preach to them. But the, really, the reality is most people are not comfortable. Most people are not comfortable hearing about something that's going to change their world, that's going to change, possibly change the way they've gotten used to living. And so they're... If you're comfortable in this life, chances are you're not going to change and you're not going to be as interested. That's the reality. So benevolence is a great tool that we can use in the local church to make a difference. And so we've used benevolence. We, we've given away rice. We've given away water. And somebody says, oh, you're trying to buy conversions. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're trying to help people. You're trying to help people. All right. Now, I asked the church this morning. I don't know if, if you guys speak up or not, so I'm not going to do this tonight. But I'm going to say this. People don't care how much you know. Now, you know the rest of it? Till they know how much you care. Till they know how much you care. And when you do something kind and compassionate for someone, you're showing them that you care. And so, in result is we are able to do an incredibly large gospel meetings. We do big ones. We do small ones in villages and cities out on the city square like this out in the rural villages, uh, under tents. They blocked off a street right there. Put a tent up in the street. Traffic had to go around in the neighborhood. But that, that look how full that place is. But these people are interested. They're listening. They can't get enough of the story of Jesus. Now, let me tell you what the Hindu religion does. The Hindu religion teaches that you're reincarnated thousands of lifetimes, thousands of lifetimes. You live, uh, let's say you live 70 years on average. Can you imagine a thousand lives, a thousand lifespans of 70 years, living 70,000 years, but going through the same cycle, lifetime after lifetime, watching your children hungry, watching them get sick and die, watching people in your village wither up, no opportunity to change, no opportunity to be any different, just life going on. Can you imagine that? So when they hear Hebrews 9.27, which says, For it's appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. Don't you know that gets their attention? And these people are hearing it, and they're listening, and they're leaving Hinduism left and right. We do meetings in homes. That's the back of P.J. Joseph's head. 
Y'all recognize that, don't you? No, of course not. P.J. Joseph is one of our best translators. But uh, just a little gospel meeting right there in somebody's house. I went to a birthday party. I went to a birthday party. I didn't want to go. Man, I've got a gospel meeting I can go to. Why am I going to a birthday party? This is a, for a child's birthday party. Why would I go to that party? There's just going to be a handful of adults there. I'm here for a limited time. Don't use me like this. Send me out. Let me do a big meeting and, and, and move on and do other things. Why are you taking me to a birthday party? So they, my translator, no, brother, you need to go with. So I, fine, I went. I didn't want to be there. And, and we, we came in. We sat down, had the tea, and had to hold the little pinky, you know. Yes, and it's nice. And, oh, they're cutting the cake. And they're saying happy birthday. And it's so lovely. And, and I'm thinking to myself, I need to be moving. And then my translator turned to me and said, okay, brother, preach. I said, what? Now, how many of you have had a sermon at your birthday party? Well, they had a sermon. There were seven adults there. We baptized all seven of them. I guess it wasn't a waste of time. You reckon Philip thought it was a waste of time to leave this great meeting in Samaria and go out to the desert to meet with one man that was the treasurer of Queen Candace of Ethiopia? Do you think it was a waste of time? You know, it's like, this is not the best use of my ability. And yet God has a plan. And God works things out. The point of it is... The end result is we're seeing men and women obeying the gospel day and night in rivers and streams and baptistries uh, and creeks in large bodies of water here in Chennai, here in Hyderabad, here in a little river outside of, of uh, Pamity Pardu. I know y'all were talking about Pamity Pardu over your coffee and cornflakes this morning, weren't you? Well, but I'm just telling you, this is happening right at the Bay of Bengal. Men and women obeying the gospel, even during COVID. By the way, every one of these pictures is less than two months old. These are folks that were baptized just recently. Though even with the COVID issue going on, they're still able to do small meetings. They're still able to teach and baptize lots of people. And so consequently, the Lord's church has grown. There are congregations, uh, church buildings everywhere. A lot of them, they build a building right on top of their house. They build the house strong enough to add another floor so they just add a church building on top. That way we don't have to buy property. And it, it just makes sense. There's a lot of little churches. People donate land. They'll build a little bit of church building, go in, sit down, have, uh, have a worship period, preach to them, and then move on to another place. Here's another church building. This is just a grass hut lean-to. But they had a PA system in there that wouldn't quit. It was powered by a big car battery or truck battery. And they turned that thing on full volume. And I'm preaching and the whole village is hearing the gospel whether they want to or not. It was phenomenal out of that little bitty church building. Um, and then, of course, we have some. This was a converted warehouse that we converted into a church building. Congregation of about 250 in Guntur District in, uh, near the city of Tubardu. Uh, but preacher training... Boots on the ground. Now, there's a lot of mission work that does mass media, and I'm thankful for it. They do the printed page. They do radio and television, and, and they print material, and they distribute it. World Bible School is a wonderful organization that sends out opportunities to learn of the God, God's Word all over the world. But what World Bible School needs more than anything else is teachers. They need teachers. And we're calling that boots on the ground. And that's been the focus of this mission work since Brother Clayton started in 1979. 
training men that like these. These are all gospel preachers, brethren, that work with us in India. Here's another bunch of them. Uh, here's another bunch of them in, an, in other cities. Classes like this take place all over India, brethren. In 16 of the 29 states of India, we have preacher training schools that are running every week. These men go to school for the rest of their life. It's a lifetime learning program. When do you graduate, one preacher was, was asked. And his answer was, when you die. That's when you graduate. You're going to go to school until you leave this world. Now, we have a one, two-year school. We have four three-month schools for intensive training. But the, our bread and butter is these one-day-a-week Bible schools where these preachers will be taught, they learn, they teach one another. And young preachers, young preachers that come in and say, you know, the Holy Spirit was talking to me this morning and told me, the old preacher will say, brother, uh, you just had some bad curry. That was not the Holy Spirit talking to you. And they will straighten him out without using one bit of tact. They will, a tact is an American thing. They don't use any tact in India. They will straighten him out, and it helps prevent false doctrine. It helps promote doctrinal soundness. It helps promote a sense of unity, of camaraderie, that they realize they're not alone in the struggles they're facing. They get to air out their problems and get to confer with each other and share the wisdom and do a better job of ministering to their people when they go back to their home churches. This is how this is working, brethren. In these schools all over India, boots on the ground. That's what our work has been. And it's continuing to do that. We literally have tens of thousands of native Indian gospel preachers that are working with us. We don't know how many of them we have. The Indians are handling this. We don't know. But we know that the number is massive. And so we, we help these men to go out and preach the gospel in their communities and in surrounding villages and on campaigns. And we're seeing vast results of men and women obeying the gospel. Now let me wrap this up. You've listened so well, but let me wrap this up. Well, obviously there is a problem right now. COVID situation is diminishing. It is diminishing, but it's still a big problem. There's still a lot of hot spots and there are still some lockdowns that are going on in India. Now in this country back in the day, back in the time of the Great Depression, a lot of our preachers were not very well paid. There just wasn't a lot of money. So what the preachers were paid in, when they would visit church members, they'd get a bag of peas, they'd get some tomatoes, they might get a, a slab of bacon, they would get some eggs, they'd get some sort, if they you know, uh, had, had an animal that they'd slaughtered, they'd give them some of the meat, and the preachers would feed their families with that. They did that by going around, visiting the members, having prayer with them, studying with them, fellowshipping with them, and they would help them to feed their families. Well, the same thing is still going on in India. But you can imagine with the lockdowns, a lot of the Indians couldn't work in, at all. But a lot of them were still able to go out in the fields and work. They just keep, kept a distance from each other. But these preachers, these preachers were not able to go around and make these weekly visits. And so their families are hungry and they're starving. And so we said we got to do something about this. So we launched a program six weeks ago Phase one was to feed up to 2,000 families. We finished phase one, 1,828 families fed. That's $138 times 1,828. But $138 will feed a family of four for a month and feed them well. Feed them well. They don't just eat rice and lentil gravy. They call it dal, D-A-H-L. 
It's pretty good if you put enough hot chili peppers in it, but it's not all that good by itself. This was all they had to eat, many cases. So $138 lets them eat some chicken, lets them have some vegetables, lets them have some good food, so they'll eat well for a month. And, and then phase two, we just started phase two. We've already helped about uh, almost 100 families on phase two. Our goal is to do another 1,000 families. This whole project is going to cost $390,000. We've raised all of it but about 35000 That's all we're lacking to be able to finish this up. By the time this is finished, our prayer is that these lockdowns are opened up enough that these preachers can go back to a normal routine and take care of their families themselves. And you say, well, if you've got tens of thousands of preachers and you've only helped this many, we've only got so much money. We've only got so much money. You know, you can't do more than what you can. So this is the best we could do. But we're doing it. We're doing something. And that's all I'm asking people to do. Do something. It's always easier to do nothing than to do something, isn't it? It's easier just to sit at home than to get up and come to church on Sunday night, isn't it? It's always easier to do nothing than to do something. Christianity is the religion of do something. Do something. And brethren, this has been one of the big problems that folks have had is they don't know exactly what they need to do. I want to do something, but what do I need to do? This is a great opportunity right here. Now, you can't just throw money at a problem and make it go away. The U.S. government, one of these days, maybe you'll figure that out, right? That's my political statement for the day, all right? But you can't just throw money at something and make it go away. But what we are doing is putting money directly into the bank accounts of these preachers so that they can feed their families. That's what we're doing. And so we're trying to finish this up so we can go on. Now, eventually, they're going to let us back into India. It's been a year since any of us have been able to go. But the work has gone on. I've shown you proof of that. These guys are still training. These guys are still going out. They're still preaching in the places they can. And they're still teaching and baptizing people, bringing them to Christ. The Lord's church is growing in India in spite of all this. So the least we can do is help them in some small way. And that's what we're trying to do. So if you'd like to help us with this, by all means, feel free to do so. Uh, we're appreciating so much the help that we can receive. And there are individuals in this congregation that help us on a regular basis to take the gospel to the lost people of India. But we also need some help to feed some hungry families. Checks, of course, made payable to Church of Christ India Missions. Uh, and, um, of course, you know we accept all manner of payments as long as it's real money. <laughs> But, brethren, the point is, the point is, we're going to use this to do the will of God, to do the work of God, just like what you're doing. When you give to help a work, you, your, your job and your intent is to do the work of God. And that's exactly what we're, our job and our intent is as well, to do the work of God. So we appreciate so much you're giving us this time. Now, let me wrap this up with a closing thought. Uh, by way of an invitation. You'll remember that there was a fellow by the name of Simon that was in that town. He was a magician, trickster, pretty good. He could pull a quarter out of your ear, stuff like that. And the people were confooled by him. They thought he was the great power of God. But when Philip came and actually performed the real miracles, and when they saw Peter and John come down, lay hands on people, and they themselves could perform these miracles, that's when they really saw the great power of God. But Simon thought he could buy this, so he offered money to be able to buy this gift from Peter and John. 
In other words, make me an apostle. Make me an apostle. Peter says, you have neither part nor lot in this matter. This is none of your concern. You're not an apostle. You're not going to be an apostle. You know, folks, we need to keep one thing clear. The apostles were the apostles, and they were the, they were the apostles. When Cornelius and his family were baptized in the Holy Spirit in Acts 10, Peter says in verse chapter 11 that they were baptized exactly the same way. The Holy Spirit came on them exactly the same way it did on us. The difference is it didn't make Cornelius and his family apostles. That was the difference. And Simon couldn't be an apostle, but he thought, they're leaving, I'll be here, I'll be the big man again. That's, that's what was going on. Now, the Bible tells us, Luke tells us, that Simon believed and was baptized when he saw the miracles and heard the preaching of Philip that he himself believed and was baptized. So he truly became a Christian. But then Simon messed up. And we all mess up. We all make mistakes. And, you know, the biblical principle is when you mess up, fess up and make it right. Make it right. And that's exactly what Peter told him to do. Repent of this, your, bitter, this, your, your iniquity. Repent of this sin and pray to God to forgive you. And Simon said, pray to the Lord for me that none of this happens to me. Well, so we have biblical precedent for praying for each other. We have biblical precedent for members of the Lord's church falling aside, falling down, messing up, and then making it right. So consider your life, consider your relationship with God. If there's sin in your life, do something about it tonight while you have an opportunity. Do something about it. Become a child of God. If you're already a child of God, but you've not been faithful to the Lord, make things right. Come back to him before it's too late. Do, if you're not a Christian yet, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Are you willing to repent, to turn away from sin, and commit your life to the service of God? Will you confess the sweet name of Jesus, that you believe he is the Son of God? And then be baptized in water for the remission of your sins, where God will wash your sins away by the blood of Jesus, and you'll be raised up to walk in newness of life. Have, if you've not done that, what are you waiting for? Don't sit there and do nothing. Do something. Save yourself from this untoward generation. Save yourself from certain destruction. Believe in Jesus and obey his gospel. And be a faithful Christian. And don't let yourself get distracted or, or deceived by Satan. Be a faithful Christian. Come to Jesus. Come home to him. If you're subject to the Lord's invitation, we invite you to come right now as we stand and sing.